Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor also, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. So this season, the whole season, we're doing a deep dive into Gillian Flynn's 2012 novel, Gone Girl. And today we are specifically looking at Middle Build One. All right. So let me reread the summary that we did in episode one of the whole of the Middle Build. So in action story primal genre, Sean is now breaking the Middle Build into two pieces. Today we're looking at the first part, but I'll read the summary for the whole Middle Build. All right. The police and Nick investigate Amy's disappearance separately and are operating under different assumptions. The police believe uh, Nick is involved or possibly responsible, while Nick believes Amy is framing him. When the police charge Nick with Amy's murder, he must decide whether he'll focus on his defense strategy or keep trying to lure Amy out of hiding to prove that she's the mastermind behind the crime. He keeps trying to lure her out of hiding and she eventually returns home. All right, so today we're looking at Middle Build 1. Now, in Season 7 of the Roundtable podcast, I did this breakdown of the new four-act structure, or three acts still. It's still a beginning, a middle, and an end, but, you know, breaking the Middle Build into two pieces. I looked at that for the whole season. So if you want more information, by all means, go read uh, Action Story, The Primal Genre by Sean Coyne and listen to the um, episodes from Season 7 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. All right. So in Middle Build 1, this is when the protagonist is operating in what Sean calls his Code 1.0. So it's everything that he knows and believes, all his tools and tactics that he used in his ordinary world that worked for him, that allowed him to get by and all that good stuff. He takes those with him now into the extraordinary world and is using them to try and navigate this crazy new world he's living in. And of course it doesn't work so well. <laughs> a little bit at a time, he discovers that everything he thought he knew, everything that used to work doesn't work anymore. This progresses the complications of the story. It increases the stakes of the story and they build and build and build until that midpoint shift, which is when everything goes into chaos. That's when, when you know, as we say here in Newfoundland, the arse is out of her in middle build two. For middle build one, we see the hero trying to use his code 1.0 to 
to navigate the extraordinary world. Now, every unit of story has the five commandments in it. So even though that summary I read out was for the whole of the middle build, there are five commandments within middle build one. And here they are. The inciting incident. Nick is interviewed at the police station the night of Amy's disappearance. The turning point comes when Noel announces Amy's pregnancy. Now, I think it's really tempting to think that the turning point of middle build one is when Nick becomes an official suspect, because that, that sounds like it would work as a turning point. And it may very well be for a smaller unit of story, but I don't think it's the turning point for middle build one because it's not a surprise to us. It's not a surprise to Nick. It doesn't throw him into chaos. It doesn't create a massive crisis for him or a crisis big enough for this unit of story. Because right from the beginning, he is saying, it's always the husband. They always think it's the husband. They're gonna think it's me. And, the, and his parents-in-law have been questioned and he knows that. And so he's been expecting it. So it doesn't throw him into a full-on crisis. Uh, so that's why I think Noel announcing the pregnancy is the crisis. So what is the crisis, or is the turning point, excuse me, what is the crisis that that throws him into? Well, I think it's this. The question is, does Nick believe that Amy actually is pregnant? And does he tell anyone that it couldn't be true because she didn't want to have children? The climax, which is the answer to the crisis question, is that Nick tells Rand, his father-in-law, and Go, his sister, that Amy didn't want to have kids and that she couldn't have been pregnant. The resolution, Amy's pregnancy is confirmed. Nick realizes he was wrong and now he fears for the life of his unborn child as well as that of his wife. Leslie, what do you think about all that? Well, um, I, th <laughs> I think this is such a useful story to study because as we're getting into this, it is, it is picture perfect, right? The well, I want to talk. I want to talk about what what the middle build is supposed to do. But let's look at it in terms of what the beginning hook is meant to do. Right, the protagonist is deciding whether to engage with the problem. There, they think they understand the nature of it, but they don't, and they can't solve the problem because they can't understand it, and that's because they can't really see it their worldview or their code 1.0 won't allow them to see it. So then we get into, but they, they reluctantly agree to engage with the problem, right? And that's how we get into middle build one. And this is what one of the things Sean calls this is the solve quadrant of the story. This is about breaking down the worldview. So, Again, the protagonist has agreed to engage with the problem and they apply their best practices. So all the tools that they've used to get by in life, they are attempting to use those. But the response that they're getting back from other characters and from the environment generally is that it's not working. It's not, he's not having the same kind of success that he's had in the past. So then by the end of the middle build one, of course, they are dropped into chaos and they finally make sense 
at that midpoint climax of the global inciting incident. So as we're cruising down, right, it appears that Amy has been taken and may be dead, but Nick comes to learn that she has left and is setting him up. Okay, so, so what's Nick's code 1.0 that's being broken down? He's relied on his good looks, sucking up, being passive, non-confrontational. There's a great line about his having an interior monologue with words that never reach his lips. So basically, he's charming his way out of every difficult situation and allowing other people to identify and metabolize problems for him. So this is not going to allow him by being passive and letting the police do what they're doing, letting other people tell him what to do, smiling for the cameras. None of that is going to work. And it causes him to fail to be honest with the police or to request an attorney early on. So one of the interesting things is I wanted to go and see Valerie if the, does Gillian Flynn give us the basis for his code 1.0 in within the story? And I found this beautiful, this is this beautiful statement about why Nick, you know, what, what's wrong with Nick. Right. And he's thinking of the setting, right? It's, it's the time and the place and the, you know, that this is, it's not my fault because the bankruptcy that they experienced in New York matched my psyche perfectly. For several years, I had been bored, not a whining, restless child's boredom, although I was not above that, but a dense blanketing malaise. It seemed to me that there was nothing new to be discovered ever again. Our society was utterly, ruinously derivative, although the word derivative as a criticism is itself derivative. We were the first human beings who would never see anything for the first time. Now, remember when we were talking about the conventions and about how you create a setting that gives rise to characters and situations that create conflict? Well, this passage within Middle Build 1 reminds us of that world and reminds us of where that worldview 1.0 comes from. So it's a beautiful setup. The whole idea of breaking a story, breaking the middle build of the story into two parts is a really useful concept because I'm, I'm a pragmatist, if nothing else. So while all this theory is fascinating and I love it and I could just nerd out about story all day long and <laughs> often do, <laughs> I'm still a writer. So I need to find out how to take all this theory and put it to work for me so I can write a better story. And Leslie, you and I have mentioned, uh, and I can't remember if it was on air or not, that Gone Girl is all middle build, <laughs> right? The beginning hook is about 10%. The ending payoff is about 11% by my calculations. And I went by page count, not word count, because I'm working from the print novel. 
So that leaves 79% middle build. That's a lot of story to tell. And the middle build is usually where the writer, and I'm putting myself in this as well, loses the thread of their story. You know, the middle build gets saggy because we can write the beginning hook because that's the story we've been thinking about forever. We know what the protagonist's ordinary world is. We know the thing that has thrown the protagonist out of homeostasis. And we can get going in the middle build pretty well. And then we start to lose steam and we, you know, our story starts to wander because we're not quite sure where to take them anymore, or we don't understand our fictional world well enough, or there's, there could be a hundred and one reasons. So the idea of taking this wasteland of the middle build, the scary middle build, which is at least half of our novel, if, if you look at the, you know, the average of the math for a story, 25% for the beginning hook, 50% for the middle build, 25% for the ending payoff. So the middle builds at least half of our story for Gillian Flint, 79% of her story. If we look at how we can break this down into two pieces, it becomes a lot less scary. First of all, it gives us waypoints, things that we can put, sort of shorter goals to hit. So we're not trying to go from the beginning of the middle build all the way to the end of the middle build. We're just going, you know, from one little part to the next as we work through the five commandments of a smaller unit of story. So I, I think this is great. And, and again, I think we said it in our first episode that Gone Girl is a beautiful example of the hero trying to get the 1.0 code to work in the extraordinary world. Nick really does try hard. He really res is resisting changing or breaking his worldview frame or accepting that all of the things that used to work for him aren't working anymore. So it's a, it's, if you're trying to figure out what this whole middle build one and middle build two is, and how is the code 1.0 is supposed to be working in the extraordinary world. If these are questions that you have that you're, you're not sure what they look like in, in practice, Gone Girl is a beautiful example to look at this. All right. Did you have anything to add, Leslie, before I go on? Well, I would say that for me, that a lot of this stuff I didn't pick up on on the first go round, right? Because, you know, one of the things we talked about also is that every clue that we see in the beginning hook and in middle build one can be read multiple ways, right? It's that uh, murder of Roger Ackroyd effect. We need it. We need a shorter term for that, <laughs> but Without get, without spoiling the story. The Ackroyd effect. There we the go. The Ackroyd. Okay, we'll call it the Ackroyd effect. Good. Um, so, so there are all those clues, right? And you can see there are multiple progressions happening within the story, um, within the middle build one of, you know, I don't need a lawyer because only guilty people need lawyers. And then it progresses a little more and he's like, mm, 
maybe I should get a lawyer. And then Go says, don't you think you ought to get a lawyer? And, you know, and then ultimately at the very end of Middle Build One, he's hiring Tanner Bolt, the defense attorney of defense attorneys, right? And so we have that progression. And then also just, I know we're going to touch on this more um, later, but, but just the wearing down of that worldview, that there are all of these, what we would say, you know, they're the red herrings that are, you know, deliberately misleading but even within the red herrings, there are these things that should be waking him up. Hey, what's this thing? What's, you know, and, and we see that in him finding out that he doesn't really know Amy, that what he thought he knew is not true. And so it's it's so skillfully done that if we were doing, if we were going to do 20 episodes on this, we would probably want to look at the way that the progressive complications are happening. Um, different types of progressive complications coming from different relationships and different aspects of the world and the people that he's with, right? Because he, there are complications that come from Go, complications that come from Andy, complications that come from the police, and of course, um, Amy herself. So that would be that would be worth worthy of further study. <laughs> and the whole of Middle Build One is a massive setup. For middle build two. Gillian Flynn is totally setting us up. And one of the things that she's doing in this whole novel, but especially here in the first uh, part of the middle build, is she's playing on our assumptions. We, we buy it hook, line and sinker. She's got us. We absolutely are ready to believe that the husband is responsible. We are absolutely are ready to believe that he's a, you know, a jerk and capable of treating every woman in his life, but especially um, Amy in a horrible way. Cause he's, you know, he's just, no, the thing that we are not a hundred percent sure of is whether he had anything to do with her disappearance because his infidelity is one thing, but you can be capable of infidelity. And it's not a direct line from that to uh, having your wife kidnapped or, or murdering her. I mean, you know, like it's just not. And any of the things that, any of the accusations leveled against Nick, any of the things that he's actually guilty of, like the infidelity and like not knowing Amy well enough to understand any of the clues uh, in her treasure hunt. Those things kind of make him, you know, a jerk, make him a bit thick headed, make him maybe self centered or uh, emotionally bankrupt um, or just not emotionally evolved enough. Any of them individually is small potatoes. Not knowing her blood type. Well, you can say, well, I don't know my wife's blood type either or my husband's blood type. And why would he know her blood? Like you can, you can, as a reader, we can rationalize that away. That in and of itself is not a damning 
uh, clue or fact. It's the sum total of them, and they're peppered throughout the story that subtly, very subtly, she's manipulating us to have a prejudice against Nick. And then she, she, she's totally setting us up in a beautiful way. Because then at the midpoint shift, and we'll talk about this next week, she pulls that rug out from underneath our feet, and it's beautiful. I really appreciate the craft uh, and being had. I love it when I have been had in a novel because it, it's just a great feeling <laughs> to not figure out who done it, despite your best efforts, to realize that the, like, we're kind of like Nick in this way, right? And Gillian is like Amy in this way. She is smarter than us. She is playing us. <laughs> it's great. My hat is off to her. Anyway, okay. The reason I picked Gone Girl uh, is because it's a, a psychological thriller. I'm writing a psychological thriller. There are specific things I want to see how I want to see how Gillian Flynn has done certain things. Specifically, how has she handled telling a story that is uh, both nonlinear and has a, a story nested within it? I want to see how she's handling the psychological uh, development and the psychological psychological aspects of a psychological thriller. And I want to see how she's tackling narrative drive. So the psychological stuff, I think I'll leave till next week. But for today, um, I'm going to look at the story structure and narrative drive. And these two are, are hand in glove in this novel. And even preparing for today's episode, I had a hard time pulling them apart, but I'll I'll do my best because uh, we have to kind of yank them apart to study them so that we can see how they work together. So what do we mean by nonlinear and what do I mean by nested? Nonlinear is a story that moves back and forth in time uh, and flashbacks are something that a lot of writers that I've been speaking with as a, a StoryGrid certified editor, they, they like to use flashbacks. The danger with a flashback is that it can be an information dump. It can be all exposition. It can be just filling in a whole bunch of backstory that may or may not be relevant. There's nothing wrong with a flashback in and of itself, but you got to know what it when it works well and when it doesn't work well, like every other principle of storytelling. A nested story is a story within a story. So this is pretty, it's more common than I thought it was actually. It's when a character finds a manuscript. In this case, the diary, Amy's diary has been found. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of this. You find your grandmother's attic. You How many stories have I read where a granddaughter goes to her grandmother's house after the grandmother's, grandmother's passing, finds the diary, and learns all about the, the romance her grandmother had during the war or something, right? I mean, it's pretty common. But these things are both tough to uh, pull off um, for very obvious reasons. The, as I said, with the flashback, it can be an info dump and it can just drain the life out of your story. With the nested story or even parallel stories, if you've got multiple storylines, the same thing can happen where your reader gets interested in one of the storylines and then you yank them away from that. And you got to try and get them interested in another storyline. And just as they're interested in, say, the B story, you yank them away from that and then they're into the A story again. So how do you get 
multiple stories working together within one novel. What Gillian Flynn has done is rather than Amy's diary and which I'm calling for the sake of this, the B story and the, the crime story of Amy's disappearance. So Nick's diary entry or Nick's chapter entries and the Amy's diary chapter entries here in middle build one, the A story and the B story, she gets them working uh, together. They're like a counterpoint to one another. One of them will ask questions about the relationship. The next one will pay it off, but or answer the questions. But as they ask answer the questions, they plant new questions in her mind. It's a he said, she said story structure. That's how she's making it work because the, the Amy's diary is what she said. That's her point of view on their relationship. The crime story part is what he said. It's his perspective on what's happening today in the now story. Let me give you just one quick example. And I picked these two at random, okay? I just picked one of Amy's diary entries and I wanted to look at the one that followed Nick's diary entry. It's, um, so Amy Elliott done July 5th, 2010. It happens to be their third anniversary. This is, uh, I call her understanding Amy in, in uh, this chapter. The whole point of this is that Nick's a big jerk and Amy is the understanding supportive wife. He, this is, it's their third anniversary and he has blown it off to go drinking with colleagues who've been laid off. He's buying rounds of drinks for them and he's putting it on a credit card that's attached to her trust fund. While all this treasure hunt that she's worked so hard to put in place is now destroyed. The lobsters that she has bought um, she's now got to kill and she's not going to eat. Like it's all just a big waste and it's all his fault. But at the end of it, she apologizes and he apologizes and you know, whatever. The very next chapter, of course, is from Nick's point of view, because they go back and forth here. She's adoring Amy and Nick is the love of Amy's life. This is when the first clue comes through. It's Nick Dunn, uh, one day gone. The, the notes that Amy has left for Nick in his office. I mean, the guy sounds like he walks on water, honest to God. He's a real catch and she's lucky to have him and she's still so in love with him. And you know, he's all that in a bag of chips. She couldn't ask for a better husband. <laughs> and Nick buys it. He buys it. This is how well Amy knows him. She just strokes his ego the tiniest little bit and he's in. <laughs> so it's so well done. The more I read this book, the more impressed I am by how complicated and how intricate the story is. Uh, it's, it's not like a braid with three big ropes that she's braided together. It's all these tiny little threads that Gillian Flynn is braiding together to form this incredible picture. Um, let me just have a quick look at my notes here. What else did I want to say? Yeah. So the entire middle build one is a huge setup to middle build two. We are led to believe in middle build one that Amy, sweet Amy is the victim. 
She never complains, you know, not really. She might, she might get a little cranky because she's human. Like she got a little cranky that he blew off her, uh, the, their third anniversary, but she forgave him because she's understanding Amy. Um, she accepts her lot in life. She's, even though her parents take her childhood from her essentially and, and sort of use it uh, for their income, she doesn't really complain. She doesn't complain when they come back and take her trust fund on her. She doesn't complain when Nick, without asking, uproots her and from New York and brings her to Missouri because she's understanding Amy. Um, and we are led to believe that Nick could really be capable of this. He's a jerk. We know he's a jerk. He's not a great husband. We know he's not a great husband. We know he's a, a emotionally cut off. Even Go calls him on that. And she knows him better than anybody else in the story. I think she knows him a bit better than he knows himself. Um, Amy knows him most of all, but we're not getting a clear picture of Amy here in Middle Build One. Um, yeah, so that's what the whole of Middle Build One is about, setting, Amy, setting us up to believe that Amy is the victim and that Nick isn't, it could very well be the criminal. So the other element I'm looking for is narrative drive. And really this is speaking to the crime story element of a thriller because the, the central dramatic question here is where is Amy? And did Nick have anything to do with her disappearance? Like who done it? That's what we're wondering as, as a global question here. Well, how does Gillian Flynn hold our attention and keep it through middle build one? I'm just going to give you, well, one, one example is I just talked about it. It's the, the, the nested story idea. She has used that as a technique to build narrative drive. Two other techniques she uses, and there's a bunch of them, like a whole bunch of them. I'm just picking two. We have contradictory views of Nick. Okay. So this keeps us on our toes wondering who is this guy? And the whole idea between narrative drive, uh, behind narrative drive is to constantly plant questions in your reader's mind because we're hardwired to want an answer to a question. So the more questions you can plant, the better. You have to answer some as you go along, but you don't answer them all. And when you answer one, you plant a new question. So we have different points of view of Nick. There's Nick's own view of himself. And he admits that he's awkward in social situations. He never quite, know us, never quite knows what to say. He's terrified of becoming like his father. He is a liar. He is a cheat. He admits, he admits these things to us because remember in the narrative device, who is telling the story to whom and why? Well, I think that it's Nick and Amy telling their story to a jury of their peers to justify their behavior and their actions. So, so he's telling us that he's a liar and a cheat, but in the context of the story, he hasn't told anybody yet. Go is the one who first figures it out. Um, but, but at the same time, he does love his sister and he does love his mother. We, we don't doubt that he might be, you know, not taking advantage of, of go a little bit, um, or a lot of bit, but he still does love her. I don't get any, uh, feeling that he doesn't. And he feels inferior to Amy's family. 
Uh, Amy says that Nick is a jerk. He drinks too much. He, she can understand that he's depressed when he lost his job. Um, she understands that he needs third, pal third party validation, but she also says he's an adoring husband and she loves him and he's brilliant and he's caring and he's gorgeous. And oh my God, what a guy. Rand and Mary Beth as the parents-in-law, um, who are protective of their amazing Amy. They even like him. And they say they know he would never do anything to harm Amy. But at the same time, they do feel the need to follow up on a question that the police had, which was, what about those dinner reservations that you said you had for your fifth anniversary, but you didn't really have? So there's, there's a, a soupçon of doubt <laughs> in their mind. And then, of course, there's Boney, who says he's the baby of the family. Now, interestingly, she is the one person who believes him this whole book. Um, the, uh, Gillian Flynn also introduces multiple suspects. So sure, it could be Nick, but it also could be Hillary Handy or it could be Desi, uh, Desi Collings. They are both introduced early in Middle Build One as possible suspects. So there's lots of stuff going on, lots of areas to ask questions, lots of questions that are answered. Um, but for the most part, we still have more questions than answers. What do you think about that, Leslie? Yes, we do have more questions than answers. And, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting is that, you know, when we talk about flashbacks, there are these dangers, of course. Um, and there is also the, the danger, you know, the biggest danger, I think, is that it's when we when we go into a flashback we're not moving the story forward right this these are things that have been that have happened in the past and so they're only they're only relevant if they are relevant to what's happening in the moment and and so the fact that Gillian Flynn is able to modulate that because so much of the book is happening in the past. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So looking at, you know, where is she choosing to place those? She's choosing to place them at moments of crisis or, you know, in turning point moments when they're trying to make sense of things and that that helps uh, that helps the characters and the reader with their understanding, you know, to see the true crises, the dilemmas that the characters are facing. And that's the only way that they are relevant. They are only relevant because they shed light on the current dilemma the character is facing. All righty. To wind up the show... We always talk about our key takeaways from what we studied that week. So Leslie, in your preparation of the middle build one of Gone Girl, what is your key takeaway? My key takeaway is that we need to separate what we're doing as the writer for the reader 
and what the characters are doing to reach their goals and what the antagonists are doing. So it's, I mean, you know what, I suppose there are lots of people I'm sure who can write a story without having to do this, but to increase the likelihood that you're going to tell a story that works and that actually satisfies readers, understanding these different components of what you're doing for the reader, what the characters are doing, you know, what the protagonist is doing to try to meet their goals, and then what the the primary force of antagonism is doing to thwart them is, you could do worse, certainly. (laughs) And my key takeaway, uh, again, I just said it, but I'll, I'll repeat it. It's that writing a nonlinear nested story is advanced storytelling. The way to get it to work, because here in Gone Girl, the nested story and the nonlinear story, they're so closely tied. The way to get it to work is to have one storyline act as a counterpoint to the other storyline. The the storylines have to be very closely linked. They're not two parallel train tracks that never meet. They're, They're touching each other all the way through so that when the reader is reading the A story, the B story is in their mind constantly. And we're somehow referring to it or bringing it in or changing our view of the B story somehow. And Likewise, when the reader goes to the B story, it's constantly touching on the A story and making us question assumptions that we had made about that. And they've got to be really, really closely linked in in order to create narrative drive, move the story forward, um, and to keep the reader entertained and engaged. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write, and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review, and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.